This is the Abolition as Resurrection Lent and Easter mini podcast series. Hi, everyone. I'm Camille. Hi, this is Gia. If you're new to our community, welcome. We're glad you found us. And if you've been with us since the beginning, welcome back. Today's conversation is on the role of reparations as we imagine into existence our abolition future. If resurrection is an ushering in of a new social order where violence, exploitation, and domination don't have the last word and rather restoration, abundance, and justice reign, then we must ask ourselves, what is the role of reparations as we rebuild and imagine into existence resurrection as abolition? This is the key question guiding our conversation with our guests, Richard Wallace, Robin Rue Simmons, and Lisa Sharon Harper. Throughout our conversation, we will be weaving in sections from Lisa's new book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. She has an entire section on repair, and we will be reading from the chapter on reparation and repentance in this section. Each of our guests are boots on the ground working towards making reparation a reality for historically marginalized people. And I have the great honor of introducing our guests today, who I can also say are friends in real life. And so I'm super stoked about having this conversation um, with each of you. Um, it's going to be really great listeners. So you're in for a real big treat. We have Richard Wallace, who is an artist, organizer, and the founder of Equity and Transformation. His work focuses on organizing Black informal workers to confront anti-Black racism in the U.S. and abroad. He is also the founder of Roosevelt University's student chapter of Stop Mass Incarceration Network, the founder of the Future of Benin Program in West Africa, one of the inaugural AFRE fellows, a vocal alum, Soros Justice alum, and was recently selected as an inaugural Margaret Burroughs Fellow. We have Lisa Sharon Harper. She is the founder and president of Freedom Road, a groundbreaking consulting group that crafts experiences that bring common understanding and common commitments that lead to common action toward a more just world. Lisa is a public theologian whose writing, speaking, activism, and training has sparked and fled the fires of reformation in the church from Ferguson and Charlottesville to South Africa, Brazil, Australia, and Ireland. Lisa's book, The Very Good Gospel, was named 2016 Book of the Year, and the Huffington Post identified Lisa as one of 50 women religious leaders to celebrate on International Women's Day. Her much-anticipated book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family in the World and How to Repair It All, is now available, so pause and go get the book. And then we have Robin Rue Simmons. She is the founder and executive director of First Repair, a not-for-profit organization that informs local reparations nationally. She is the former Fifth Ward Alderman of the city of Evanston, Illinois, where she led in co collaboration with others the passage of the nation's first municipally funded reparations legislation. Wow, you all are awesome and amazing, doing some fabulous work. Robin, I remember when you were just getting started on the work that you, um, that you did in Evanston. And so before we get started with our conversation, I'd love to invite each of you just to share just a little bit more about yourself and why you said yes to this episode on rebuilding. I guess I can go first. Um, my name is Richard Wallace, CM Hayes, founder at Equity and Transformation, also known as EAT. Um, and the reason I said yes is because it's you, yeah. <laughs> um, I think we work through uh abolitionist is a small circle of people um and you get that title you get that um through doing the work and you meet the people in the work and you build relationships in the work and so that means you show up for people 
um, as it relates to the work and that commitment towards reaching that North Star of abolition. And I believe this podcast is going to be an opportunity to bring new people into alignment with this vision. So for me, I feel like that's the reason why I'm here. I'm excited to be on the panel with all of you brilliant folks today so we can begin kind of discussing and surfacing some new ideas around how we um, we build towards abolition in Illinois. Like like Richard, uh, Gia, you know, I consider the source on everything and I know all things that you are attached to are, you know, in order, let's say that from our experience together. And so I appreciate any invitation and opportunity to speak about the need for reparations for people of African descent in this nation, uh, starting with the work that we've done here in Evanston and using that as really inspiration, not a model or a blueprint, but really inspiration for what other municipalities, institutions, government bodies, uh, family foundations should be doing to repair the egregious uh, harms against the Black community. And I'm very happy to be here. I also look forward to learning a lot from the co-panelists as well. I feel the same. I'm, I'm excited to be in conversation. You know, you spend a long time writing a book and you don't really know how people are going to respond to it. And at the same time, you know, you're not the only person thinking about these things. So I'm just excited to actually have conversations with people in the work, in the community about what is it going to take to repair what, how race broke our world um, and to share a little bit about, you know, what I found in, in my own thinking and, and learn from the fellow pan panelists. Sorry, that's my dog in the background. <laughs> there you go. All, all souls are welcome. All babies, all dogs. <laughs> this is a, a place that honors all life <laughs> in our podcast. To get us started in our conversation, let's create a working um, understanding of what reparations is. So similar to the word abolition, there's a lot of misconceptions and understandings about what reparations are and what they aren't. It's an expansive term that gives a lot of room to imagine what reparations mean and what it can look like in different communities and contexts. So um, we would just love to start this conversation with creating a working definition of reparation. So can I have each of our guests share how you would define or describe reparation? Well, I think, I mean, I can start. Um, reparations, um, very simply, is repentance in my faith construct and the faith, my understanding of my faith. It is, I learned about it, you know, in youth group. <laughs> it, what is repentance? It is to turn and walk another direction, um, to, to change the way that we do life together in the world. Um, but it also is, it is um, redress for actual harms done. Um, and it is, it is what it takes to not only reverse your action, but rather also to make up for the impact of that action over time. So the, the stealing of land is not just to give back the land as my friend um, Renee August in South Africa has said, but it is also um, to, to give back the loss of wealth that would have been and could have been accumulated on that land between the time when you took it and the time when you offer redress. So. That's how we actually then begin to bring equity into our world. Fundamentally, reparations is the practice that what it's going to take in order to, in order to repair the damage done by the hierarchies of human belonging that created the inequity 
that created the inequity that we have in our world right now. I can go next. Um, thank you for that, Lisa. <laughs> this is uh, this has been. I mean, I think we're, we're learning together. We come out of the UN's definition of reparations, which essentially has five pillars. Right, the first pillar is satisfaction, um, and that's for like moral damage, emotional injury, mental suffering. Um, uh, second pillar is compensation. So I think most of the times people, when we think about reparations, we think about the bag. Right. <laughs> we like, oh, we get to, the, you know, get to the bag. Right. And that's part and that's just one part of compensation and it should be provided for any economically accessible damage. Um, additionally, there's restitution, meaning reestablishing the situation which existed before the wrongful act was committed. Um, and so that's extremely important. Um, rehabilitation is a, another core component of reparations and it should include medical and psychological care as well as legal and social services. And the last piece is a piece that I, uh, I lean into the heaviest in our work is a guarantee of non-repetition. Um, and so for us, it's like, it's extremely important to close the door completely. Um, so it's not, it's, it doesn't help us for you to, to identify that you're gonna give reparations and then turn around the next year and do the same and cause the same damage, right? So when we think about reparations for the war on drugs, we're also calling for the ending of, you know, permanent punishments as it relates to drug crimes and drug arrests in the United States. We're not just asking for a bag of money and then you get the bag of money that's take it right back from you <laughs> through fees and whatever, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's, the, that's the framework we come out of. It's a UN's definition of reparations has five pillars. Um, and those are the pillars I've just listed. I really can't add much that hasn't been said, but I will say that um, in repairing a harm, there are so many harms in our community. And we also, I personally, um, you know, look at the five components of full repair. And to that point of compensation being mostly discussed in reparations and, you know, some form of a check, without full repair, um, that check would go back into predatory lending practices and discriminating laws and so on. And so um, we have seen actually some guarantee of non-repetition in uh, laws, um, discriminating laws being outlawed, but then we didn't address predatory lending or other discriminating factors. We are seeing some uh, satisfaction that's happening, monuments and street namings and so on, but we're not seeing it connected together. And, and, and so we also are looking at full repair. We started with one component of full repair and know that we have really multiple lifetimes of work ahead of us, but addressing all of those areas of repair that are needed. Can I add one thing? Please, yes. That, that fundamental to my understanding of reparation has actually come um, that it's not only repairing the ones who have been broken, but it's, been, it's repairing the relatedness between people groups the relatedness between the oppressed people group and their government. And so that relationship was broken. In order, in order to fix it, you have to go back to the beginning. How did it break? When did it break? Um, how did that happen? So the identification of maybe the genesis of the break is really important. And for us, that happened the moment they landed, those first explorers landed on the coast, the Western coast of Africa and looked at us and said, you are not civilized, therefore you can be enslaved. You, we can take your land 
and claim it for the throne according to the, the doctrine of discovery. And so in that moment, our equal dignity, our equal call to exercise stewardship of the world, agency in the world was not recognized. So the process of reparation is actually as important as, as the end result. The process has to acknowledge our human dignity and our agency. So we have to have not only a say, but the centered say in, in how that repair happens and what happens. That's, that's really, really good. Um, I think um, there's this structural component, there's this policy component, and then there's also the relationality component that also that is, that is, um, that is included in what it means to have like a holistic kind of vision around reparations. Um, Lisa, you also kind of touched a little bit on the origins and that kind of leads us into this next, um, this next piece. Um, in your book, you, you talk about that, you, you, you kind of share about this pilgrimage that you had. And so when we think about um, reparations, it's like we can't, we can't not also think about the struggle. Like there's been a long struggle for the works of reparations. Yeah. Um, and the struggle is so deeply connected to white resistance, white resistance of black liberation, black and brown liberation. Um, and so I wanna, I wanna read this and then, and then, and then I'll ask a, a question related to this. Sure. So in um, reparations as repentance, you say, I learned on a pilgrimage to Thomas Jefferson's Montecito plantation that the penman that the penman of the first draft of the Declaration of Independence owned more than 600 people over the course of his life. There were usually about 200 enslaved people living on his plantation at any given time. Jefferson set aside a few slave dwellings for individual families who worked inside the house or as an ironsmith, but the overwhelming majority of the human beings he owned slept in the fields. He kept scores of children in one small shed where they slept at night. Next to that was a shed for his tools. Jefferson is revered for his, for, for his forward thinking ingenuity, yet he could not see his way past his double mind. He claimed to desire the gradual abolition of enslaved people, but he refused to set free the people he owned. Towards the end of his life, he was faced with a choice, free the remaining 130 enslaved souls or sell them to pay off his debt. He sold them into the deep South. The people and families and community he owned rather than he himself paid the penalty for his debt. The 14th Amendment moved white America from ambiguity about who America is for the unambiguous granite rock of constitutional law. America's for all who are born here are naturalized here. Congress and the states proclaimed. Nonetheless, Southern white state and local legislators effectively wove a web of Jim Crow laws and policies that blocked people of African descent from all avenues that led to flourishing. They crafted laws in a way that guaranteed white people the right to flourish, but locked blacks out of the franchise. Turner understood this and did not believe. Whites could cap were capable of repentance. So he called African-Americans to take things into their own hands and leave. Mm -hmm. So this history, it's, um, it speaks to us today, right? So like when we think about this struggle, like what does like, what is this history? Like, so kind of unpacking yeah. some of this history that got us to where we are today. And then what does, like, what does reparations actually mean and look like for Black liberation um, and Black freedom? Well, wow, you, you actually, the part that you're about to go into has actually one of my favorite um, things, gems that I found in my research 
um, um, you know, the, the question of Turner and, and his vision, and then also later, um, Derek Bell and, and his Afrolantica, um, his, his fable of Afrolantica and the reality that there was this, there is this fable about black people actually setting out to sea and trying to find Atlantis, thinking that could be the place they colonize and then almost getting there and having it just disappear into the mist, literally go back into the sea as they were approaching it in this, in this fable. And, um, and, and then, but them realizing that they, the fact that they organized, the fact that they actually got hundreds of people to go out to see, to, to see if they could colonize this new, literally new land, that in itself showed them that they had what it took. Now, the question is how what it took to do what, right? Because that's ultimately how do we, what do we have to overcome? Well, if we look back at the very first race laws, we see the roots of this, this hierarchy of human belonging that was created in America. And we see the, the, the substance of it. And that substance has repeated itself through time in every generation. The substance of it is this, that people of African descent were imagined to be only good enough, um, only good for the increase of white men's profits, white men's bank accounts. That's what we existed to do according to the white imagination. And there was no ability, no capacity to imagine a world where we could share power. We could actually, um, all of us, co-determine how we were going to live together. And so, um, and, and really what they did was they, they transplanted a noble's surf um, economic structure from Europe um, and, and hierarchy of human belonging to American soil and just racialized it. And we became the serfs and they became the nobles, um, automatic nobility just for having white skin, or at least that was the myth. So you see it in the very first race law, that first race law has both um, race, gender and citizenship law in, entwined in it. So you cannot extricate one from the other. What it meant to be black was to be a non-citizen ultimately in that 1662 um, Virginia law, what it meant to be, um, to be black was to be, uh, was to, to be uh, used for the, the profit of white, of white men. And what it meant to be a black woman was to be um, the birther of free labor for white men. When you go over to, to Maryland where Fortune was, the, the second colony and their race laws situated just two years after, you actually begin to see that white women were not really white in their perspective. Most, much like Rome and, and the Greek philosophers, white women were barely considered human at all. They, in fact, they were only as white as their protection of white male egos. So I think that what, what you, because they are enslaved, in case you don't know, if you need to read the book, um, in that very first law, um, white women are marrying and, and having the children of black men, I mean, in droves in Maryland. And this is, of course, getting under the skin of white men, bruising their egos, and also confusing the racial hierarchy that have, they have been constructing. So they decided they were going to enslave white women if they, if they married and had children with an enslaved black man. She became a slave of, of her husband's master, and her children became enslaved in perpetuity. So by the time Fortune is standing before the court in 1705, that law has been walked back. They're no longer enslaving white women. But now what they're saying is, if your mother is white, then you cannot be enslaved. But if your father is black, then you definitely will be indentured at least. Um, and over time, they then incentivized rape. They incentivized um, the really breeding. It was the first 
slave breeding um, and indenture breeding that was happening in that first century, um, the first century of existence um, of the second colony. So why do I say that? What are we up against? We're up against a lack of imagination for what it could look like for us to actually all flourish together. And so what does repair require? It requires first for us to recognize the full dignity that we have and the actual, I believe, call of God to exercise agency in the world. It also requires that we not take that as, um, as incentive then to oppress. In other words, to do further oppression to indigenous people. My friends who are indigenous would say, you can have your 40 acres, but we'll take the land. <laughs> or you can have the mule, we'll take the 40 acres. That's what it is. And so we have to deal with that. We have to deal with the fact that we all are in a piece of history. You can't actually get us back to where we were beforehand. It's not possible. So what do, where do we go from here? We have to reimagine a new way of being together in the world. But that at the heart of that reimagining is the acknowledgement and the bowing to the inherent human dignity and call to exercise agency of every single human being on this land. And so together we need to determine how we will live together in the world. But what the redress will look like needs to be, um, needs to be uh, designed conceived um, and followed um, from the mouths and the hearts and the feet and the labor um, of, of those who were impacted most. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and I know that Richard and um, Robin, I, I mean, with this history, I know that Richard and Robin, like a lot of your work is really about the calling in um, and, and the work on the ground. So maybe you all can kind of jump in and talk about like, what does that mean? Like, what does this collective liberation look like in each of your own respective kind of communities? And then feel free to jump in and um, add to, to what Lisa just shared as well. I definitely wanna call you on to the conversation. Sure, and so um, thank you for that history. And it is, it is that history that led me to the conclusion of reparations locally, knowing that we've been fighting for reparations since we've been here. There are documented cases of, uh, of attempts for repair. HR 40 was introduced in 1989 and has been just ceremonially reintroduced year after year. It first has passed out of committee last year. Um, but in doing that, understanding the history and being in an elected role and seeing the harm, I knew the narrative as a Black woman in a segregated community, but then seeing the policy, understanding the practices, seeing the racism that's still baked in today through zoning laws and, and housing codes and, uh, and budget allocations and representation on boards, committees, and commissions, seeing that, I realized that the legacies of slavery are impacting us all the same. And so we've only just transitioned from different stages of oppression and are only nominally free. And I thought in my role, I have to do all that I can, the full extent of my elected role. We're in a homeroom municipality, many municipalities are. And so we can begin to repair at least what's happened in my city in Evanston. And so I've always led with solutions only. I, 
I understand, you know, truth telling and how important that is. But in this exploration of leading reparations, I visited South Africa and I went there really expecting to be directed by truth and reconciliation and the work that had been happening there for 20 years. And it happened to be a political season. And I heard the candidates talking about reparations. I physically witnessed the unbelievable financial lack of, uh, of, of Black people in that nation. And I had I struggled with it being known and applauded for its truth and reconciliation. But at that moment that I was in South Africa was the most financially divided nation in the world. And so that had me return back to Evanston, um, prioritizing reparations, action, tangible repair, uh, legislations that have bu uh, budgets and funding attached. And so I uh, requested the first $10 million of the incoming cannabis sales tax be set aside to begin the work of reparations. And I'm committed my life to growing that fund, expanding the programs, holding more accomplices accountable, other institutions. Our faith community has really stepped up. I'd love to share um, later all that our faith community is doing. Um, and that's where the story that Lisa has shared has taken me in my leadership. Yeah, I'm just I'm just taking it all in. This has been one just uh, I'm taking notes on y'all. So thank you for all of it. <laughs> you got me looking up uh, a lot of the early. It reminds me um, when you were going back in history to um, the merchant class in Europe and their travels to the U.S. Uh, essentially kind of mimicking the ideals of the bourgeoisie at that time, which is then part of the process of how we get to what Dubois discussed and described as the racial wage of whiteness, which is where they, you know, this is where the the buy between black and white workers began to, to, to the gap started, right? Um, into slavery, we had all the skills, we were the skilled labor, there was no other labor. Right? Um, and, and so um, after slavery, there was just this emergence of, 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 of black paid labor, right? And I think that a lot of times these, you know, systems of oppression don't abandon system, systems that work, right? And, and slavery built the wealth of the United States of America, right? And so they don't abandon systems that work to that extent, they, they perfect them, right? And so we go from what was, um, you know, chattel slavery to wage slavery of today. And then making the connections between that wage slavery system and, um, you know, my belief is that um, since its inception, you know, um, mass incarceration has been um, it, it, its its purpose um, has been to prevent black bodies from acquiring living wages for their labor, right? And I think well, that makes us call into question what is the system we currently live under? We live under a capitalist system which demands that we exchange our labor for a wage. Um, anything they can do from identifying us as three-fifths of a human being to identifying us present day as formerly incarcerated means that we get a lower exchange rate on our labor exchange, right? So when we labor as formerly incarcerated person, I can be, they can define me, they can pay me less, right? Look at the 13th Amendment, it just keeps going, right? So behind bars, I can make pennies on the day, right? 
And I could be working for a Fortune 500 behind the prison walls. I know many brothers that had full-time employment opportunities while they were incarcerated. They couldn't find full-time employment. I mean, at the same business, at the same company, right? Working for a Fortune 500 behind the prison walls, they come home and apply for that same job and are told they can't do it because they're formerly incarcerated, right? So it has everything to do with the fact that behind the prison walls, we can extract more value from your labor than we can when you're home. When you're home, we have to pay you as a citizen of the United States, the minimum wage, right? And that is, and, and so therefore your value is, you're, you have more value to us incarcerated than you do having us free. And right, and so the, the system I think that we think of, of slavery, et cetera, et cetera, hasn't been abolished, hasn't ended, it has been perfected, right? It is, it is, it is in this, this, you know, I wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post that talked about how racism is just coded now, right? You don't see whites only water fountains, but you see coffee shops that say it, it's $13 a cup, right? In the neighborhood where the average per capita income is 11,000. You see houses that are $800,000 in communities where the unemployment rate is like 81%, right? And so you know, without being explicitly racist that who and who cannot fit into the buckets that you define, right? And so I think this is, you know, I think everything that you all have brought up just kind of reminds me of that um, and reminds me of the work that we have to do towards reparations uh, in, in the United States, but then also just also identifying what are the systems, right? Because I, the reason I love this conversation is because we also are talking about abolition. And, and, and I think for me, it's like uh, abolition is simply saying that I believe that I see a world where prison, slavery, Jim Crow laws, redlining, police, prisons, the war on drugs no longer exists, right? And, and, and people are like, oh, how are you an abolitionist? Like, that's edgy. Like, no, it's not. Like, I think every single person in the, in the United States should see a world without, should want to see a world without prisons, police, redlining, racism, the, all of these systems that are, that are harming folks, right? Um, but in order to get there, right, we have to address some of those fundamental truths about capitalism and about the impact of racism, um, which is which was a process of capitalism, right? And so that is that's so it's the racial wage of whiteness. Getting back to what Dubois was speaking about is essentially they negotiated with the white working class when because remember after slavery there was like this convergence of black workers and white workers, right? Black workers had to edge up on them because they had all the skills, right? The white workers didn't have the skills, but they were competing with black workers for the jobs. White folks essentially came together and said, we're going to start allowing these poor white folks, the, the, the rich white folks said, we're gonna allow these poor white folks to entertain us, to come to our parks, to attend our schools, to, to look us in the eye, to eat at the restaurants that we eat at, et cetera, et cetera. And that became the racial wage of whiteness. And so over the years, the white community has held on to that little, that subtle difference between them and us. And they'll settle for that opposed to getting actual equality or winning, right? A seat at the table with the bourgeoisie, right? And so that as long as they can keep their foot on our necks, right? Um, and those are the folks that we see in the far right right now that are advocating storming the White House and all that type of stuff, right? And, and so I, I, I don't want, I know I'm kind of all over the place, but at the end of the day, um, 
I think the point that I want to lift up is that any conversation about reparations and abolition needs to also center um, the conversation around, you know, the histories and the origins of anti-Black racism in the United States and the destruction of capitalism as a whole, right? Capitalism in the, United, in the U.S. context has been um, one of the greatest uh, tools of oppression for Black people, right? We were the original capital. Right, this we were the capital before we were we were not workers during slavery. We were bought and sold. We were capital. Um, the more slaves you had, the more wealthy you were, right? And so we have to continue to think that that system is not the best fit for our people, right? And so we have to also, you know, I think along with the systems, begin to think about what has been the impact of capitalism um, and how that has affected, you know, our 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 fight against anti-black racism in the U.S. Yeah, I just want to I want to um, you know piggyback on that just to say along with um, understanding the impact of capitalism in this history and the structure. One of the things that I found um, just in researching my family's story is that in every single generation, these laws and structures were indeed crafted in order to um, to bolster, entrench, and then protect the profit margin in white men's bank accounts. That was the bottom line every single time, every time, every time. And white men were always the ones who were always um, uh, exempted from the law. Basically, they could do whatever they wanted with impunity because even if it broke the law, they would still be let free by the law because ultimately, especially especially rich white men, not not always poor ones, not always poor ones until later, just like you just said, Richard, but because this land was literally built for them, not you and me, but for them. <laughs> and so, but I want to add. I think it's important for us to to center this conversation also in the context not only of capitalism, but of colonization. Because unless we understand that we are needing to, what, what we are repairing is a colonized and colonizing world, then whatever repair we do will only touch the surface. It won't reform our world. It won't reshape the way that we live together in the world. And we are and have been since at least 1619. Um, but you can go back to the 1500s and 14, you know, 92. You can, you can go back that far. We've been in the in the context of the age of colonism, colonization. And the age of colonization, some say, began to crumble in the 1950s and 60s and you know, 40s actually after World War II. Um, and and you you begin to see all of the African nations begin to go. Wait a minute, you know, we 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 should we should be able to. To, to run our own damn selves. Like they, they actually, they say that. And then one after another, after another, they begin to fall. And the last one to fall is apartheid. The last one to go down is the apartheid regime. And I love what you said, Robin, in terms of um, reparation. I was there and I had a very similar experience. I went to the, to the um, apartheid museum in Johannesburg and I read the documents on the wall and on the wall, it is explicit. They had three, three, count them three, objectives of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. One was to figure out who gets amnesty, so the forgiveness part. Two was to tell the truth, so they had the actual truth commissions. But the third was reparation. 
And out of the three, that was the only one they never did. They could not come to agreement. And it was political agreement. They could not get the political will to actually repair, which is why you visit now. We visit now and we see the most inequitable city on the planet is Cape Town, the most. And so it's also the most violent because violence follows inequity, not poverty, inequity. Um, so so when, we, when we talk about repair, what is it gonna take to repair? At the heart, I, I'm just a strong believer of going back to the root and uprooting it, right? So you gotta go back to the root. And if you go back to the root, you have to understand we are in and we are still in an age of colonization, which means we're in an age of war. This is a war march. And that war, I don't believe it's a war against black people, native people, Latino people. I don't think that. I think rather it is a war for, from the perspective of the colonizer, for their own flourishing. But they don't understand that they or believe even with their own Christian faith, quote, Christian faith, um, they don't believe that they can thrive in a world where others thrive too. And that, that is the heart of the struggle. It is to, it is to build a world where we can all, all of us exercise agency to shape the world and thrive. This is like beyond my body. This knowledge is so good. And um, what I, I want to do in this moment is I have a connecting thought that um, I, I want to make this connection on reparation that I, as I am learning from um, Richard, Robin, and Lisa. Um, and in this connecting thought, I'm going to use the example of I live in California. Um, and in California, we have wildfire season. So like half, like two thirds of the state's on fire. And um, two years ago, there was a abolition, like not even abolition, there was just this campaign because people realized that those who were in prison were um, essentially in, like forced labor to fight off the wildfires. So they were doing um, controlled fires. They were battling the wildfires that we have. Um, and if you haven't come to California during wildfire season, it's it's like straight out of a sci-fi movie. You're, the sky is orange, there's ash everywhere, you can't breathe, it's, it's bad. Um, but we had learned that it was those who were in prison who were combating the fires in some of the most dangerous areas, right? They were being trained in prison um, and then they were being sent off and they would have to go back to prison after they had spent the entire day fighting what is not even a natural catastrophe, but really a man-made catastrophe due to the violence of colonization. Um, and in this connecting thought, I'm thinking about how there was recently a bill in California that was passed that said anyone who was imprisoned is allowed, is, is able to um, uh, apply and be hired for a job as a firefighter after imprisonment. And there is this very large celebration <laughs> on that saying like, oh, we've, we've solved this problem. People who have been formerly incarcerated are now able to have employment. But as I'm listening to the wisdom that you three are giving, it's not that it, that bill didn't solve the issue, right? The issue is what's underneath and what's underneath is why are there people who are being imprisoned? Why does this indentured servitude 
or imprisonment or incarceration or enslaved labor? Like, why is it justifiable to put people in the line of danger for something that happens annually? Um, and then on top of that, what, what is being done to, um, what's being done to protect our youth? What's being done to protect the most vulnerable from over-policing, from being incarcerated, from being sent into prisons? Um, but on top of that, there, there is also the question of how come we aren't also looking at the way colonization has hurt the land, right? How come we are not addressing the fact that climate change is a man-made issue from colonization? So this rep so reparation for this one system, this one um, essentially like microcosm of events isn't just based off of let's give those who were informally incarcerated jobs. It's we have to look at the whole issue dating back from um, colonization, dating back from essentially like white supremacy's war on people and war on land and war on um, belonging. And then also looking at, at how we are creating systems and structures in place to lead to school to prison pipelines, to lead to poverty to prison pipelines or the foster care to prison pipelines. Like these pipelines, pipelines were created in order to give us, as, as Richard was saying, free capital um, to give us people who are doing the work to protect our lives, but they're not, they're not volunteering themselves in for our safety. It's not, it's not something that, like, they're not willingly say, Hey, I'm going to go to the line of fire, like the literal line of fire in order to, um, make pennies on the dollar. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying all this, <laughs> I'm thinking out loud, but as I, as so many people think reparations is right. 40 acres and a mule. It's not, it is multi-level multi-dimensional. Um, we're asking a lot of questions and looking at not just like, not just the problems, but the genesis of the problem. And what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing is that the genesis of the problem always comes back to white supremacy, to colonization and to these social hierarchies and these hierarchies of belonging that were created to reinforce the systems of violence that we have today. Yeah, if you know, I'd love to share just one thought that comes from your, your, um, your reflections, Camille. Um, I took a pilgrimage, another pilgrimage that I didn't write about in this, this particular book. Um, one day, one day I'll write about it. Um, but it's a pilgrimage to understand America's addiction to imported labor um, for, its, for its economy, for its economic gain. And the pilgrimage started at the Whitney Plantation in, in Louisiana. And then from there, we went to Sugarland, um, right outside of Houston, Texas, where peonage was the thing. It's like just, it's basically a land full of plantations that were work farms that, um, that convict leased men were, were funneled onto in the, in the years at, in the, at the end of the reconstruction era. And then um, we went to the border. So we went to San Antonio and then the border. All right, y'all. So what I found there, when we got, by the time we got to the border, it was very clear. We start on the Whitney plantation. That's obvious. Black people are being used in order to create more profit margin for white bank account, white men's bank accounts. Same thing is true in, in, um, in Sugarland. When convict leasing becomes a thing, it, it starts happening. In fact, one stat says that Alabama's 
GDP, annual GDP by the year 1886 or 1895, one of those two, that 85% of their GDP was coming from convict lease labor. 85% of a state's gross domestic product was coming from convict leased labor. Um, then we go to um, we go to the Alamo, and in Alamo, um, you know, the walls are sacred. You can't touch the walls, and this is the place where Texas had its last stand. Nowhere, anywhere on any of those law walls is it listed or or told or even whispered that Texas fought the Alamo in order to keep slavery in the state. That's why they fought the Alamo, um, because Mexico wanted to abolish and had already abolished slavery, but Texans um, wanted to keep it. That's why they fought. We go down to the border and it was during the Trump era, 2018, and they had just extended the border, um, military on the border by 100 miles. It's a 100 mile military fence that was, that was placed around all of America's borders. Now think about that. That made it really, really difficult for people who were coming over the border to get above 100 miles. What is 100 miles from the border? That's the South, that's agriculture country. So what are they gonna do? How can they live once they get over the border if they can't make it North? They settle on the plantations. They are now the new enslaved people. They are the ones who now have to work without water, work without, um, without um, a place to relieve themselves in the middle of the day, work in the hot desert sun um, in order to in order to pick the food um, and and the cotton um, and that and other parts of of Texas that that supply the food on our tables. So our entire economic system, as it exists from jump, has been dependent on free labor and on not low cost labor. That you don't have America without that. That's part of what it means. That's why I resonate with the capitalist question, but I don't think it's only about the system of capitalism because there is such a thing as socialist capitalism. You know, there's, there's a lot, there's like 30 different kinds of capitalism. We have something here, at least since the 1980s called laissez-faire, you know, free market capitalism, which basically says the market is God. The market determines what is right and what is wrong. And whatever the market says is what we do. And what the market has said from jump is we need free labor in order to maintain our way of life. And what does that sound like? That sounds like states' rights. That sounds like, uh, that sounds like the whole mantra that got us, um, that, that pushed us to have to push against um, Jim Crow and, and to win the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. So I think we as a nation, what repair will require is it will require us asking the question, can we imagine a nation where every single person's labor is paid in a way that they can live and thrive and flourish. That really is, in many ways, the bottom line. Yeah, well, I was going to see if Ru had anything to say, um, <laughs> and then I'll, I'll jump in. I, I disagree with a lot of what you said, and, and I think I was thinking about, you know, the, it's, it's, it's a little complex, right? Because I remember when I was in prison, um, 
some of the only, you know, a lot of the jails and prisons that exist today are 23 and one of the farming. Right. Um, and so 23 and one means that you're in the cell 23 hours a day and you only come out one or you're like down on one of the farms where you work for pennies on the dollar. And so a lot of people that are in 23 and ones are like, I send me to the farm because at least at the farm, I have connect. I'm, I have a, have a connection to the land. I have a connection to my humanity and I can use my hands. I'm not in the cage 24 seven. And so I remember having my job. <laughs> which paid me very little or nothing, but it was the only time I got out my cell every day, right? And so for a lot of the folks that may be firefighters or whatever, this is the opposite. I'm just giving you all the other, uh, the, the inside look, it's exploitive, it's horrible, and we need to end it. At the same time, there's, there's I think in the abolitionist perspective, there's always the, the now and the visionary world that we wanna live in. In the now, um, some of those really exploitive slavery type exchanges that folks have to do when they are incarcerated are there are the minimal freedoms they have which is wild right um but can you imagine being in a cell 23 hours a day and then someone being like hey you want to come out and fight this wildfire you'd be like yep sign me up right um and so um one we you know i think the abolitionist has to be you know conscious of you know i think the, the experiences of the people that are currently incarcerated and hold that as they, you know, continue to dismantle this system because the whole thing has to go, right? There should never be, I think the, the idea of folks in prison uh, has to end. Uh, the labor opportunities they have is also problematic, right? But also, let, let's, let's take a look at like, you know, the question around 23 and one, is that a humane practice, period? We, I think abolitions already know no, um, and, um, but the other option, limited as it may be is, to get out into labor for very cheap wages. Um, that's one piece. The other thing um, I was thinking about is um, how are we defining racism, right? And, and the way that we I define racism, I take a lot from, uh, from theory, books, whatever, but racism is the relationship between racist policies and racist ideas that produce racial inequities, that produce and sustain racial inequities, right? That's how I look at it, right? And And so, Racism alone is nothing like people are like, oh, you called you called me the N word. That means nothing if you don't have power. Right. Like you have the power to turn that. That was that idea was enforced by. Then said the set that you, 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 you had more power, you had power over me. Right. And so when I think about, you know, racial inequity is when you have two or more groups that are not on equal standing and on equal footing. Right. And so a racist policy is a policy that produces or sustains racial inequity, right? And so those, those, those systems over time have looked like capitalism, like, we, like we, we talked about, it looks like slavery, it looks like Jim Crow laws, looks like redlining, looks like policing, looks like prisons, looks like the war on drugs. And each of these policies must be abolished, right? And I think that we've all come to say like, yes, these systems must be abolished. Um, and that I think the reparations is the answer to the other part. So the dismantle, right? And so there's often like this, you know, like there's always this call for us to lean into what we want to dismantle. There's very little space for us in movement making and black, you know, in black theory production or whatever to define what it is we want to see in its replacement, right? And so I think what, when we talk about reparations, I think what reparations affords us is specifically satisfaction and, 
and other parts of, you know, I think in the UN's context, is the ability to begin to dream up what comes in the replacement of the things we, we choose to dis what we, we have to dismantle to survive, right? And so when we think about a world without prisons, right, who better to define what that looks like than, than the folks who are dismantling that system, right? And so I think it's, you know, again, we got to be uh, double-breasted in our work. Right. And, and that means that we have to be able to say very explicitly what the systems of oppression are that are causing these racial inequities and also what the solutions to those things may be. Right. And so I think this has been an awesome opportunity to talk about, like, the wildfire situation, to talk about, you know, wage slavery, chattel slavery, et cetera, et cetera. And then, like, begin to vision around what comes in replacement of these systems. Um, and I like what you brought up about social capitalism, right? Uh, socialist capitalism or other forms of capitalism that are not driven by um, uh, production, right? So when we think about labor in the US context, we think about labor production, right? And so that means that productive labor, that the more you work, the more cars you build, the more you work, the more, you know, whatever. And there's a labor value attributed to that. And that is that ignores it's like that boot, pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality, right? And it does it ignores all the maintenance that goes into like actually keeping the boots together, right? And so a lot of times domestic labor is ignored. A lot of times, you know, childcare is ignored. Um, taking care of elders is ignored. Um, domestic, like again, domestic labor is ignored because it's not considered labor like production, right? So I think about this in this new visionary world where all our people's needs are met, like you said, everyone's labor is acknowledged. And I think if everyone's labor is acknowledged, then we are at subsistence, right? Everyone should be getting paid. Everyone should, you know, should have the resources they need in order to get food, water, shelter, et cetera, right? If we only begin to acknowledge. And that's why I think a lot of the work that we do around informality, Black informality, um, it really outlines that. Like our folks have a robust network of childcare providers, hair braiders, folks doing nails, folks, are, you know, rap, hip hop, jazz, all this came from inform informality, right? That is like, look, if we just only looked at that as labor production, you would see what the wealth would look like in our communities. But essentially this, the state has defined what's formal and what's informal. And them doing that, that has been an extremely racist practice. And that like today and today, today in the US and in Chicago and in the state of Illinois, you can't braid hair in your home. It's specifically as it relates to home-based business licenses. If you look it up, the home-based business licenses that you cannot acquire in the state of Illinois are majority black trades, hair braiding, doing nails, selling food, all these different things that have historically our folks, I've had a candy lady on my block when I was growing up, right, we had a candy lady, right? And so that is illegal, right? AKA that is informal. And so they've, they've, they've really made even the modes and they've, they've made us criminal in so many aspects of our wage earning or in our labor um, in the US that it makes it so that we, we have to begin to kind of inverse what those policies have been in order to get to this destination of repair. Right. And so when we think about repair, we also got to think about, OK, well, what kind of home based business licenses do we need to open up to ensure that our folks can do this? You know, so I think about, you know. Place and 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 and, and I think like strategy and we talk about this is going to be a long fight, but it definitely is a long fight. 
Um, and it's kind of like this racism is hidden in the crevices of almost every policy that is enacted in the state of Illinois. Um, and so we have to do our due diligence to make sure that we, you know, we turn over every stone um, and, and create this, this new vision for a world uh, where everybody's needs are met. Robin, so you- I'll just add that just really quickly, there's all of the conditions that we're seeing, they're simply uh, policy decisions. It's just that simple. And if we have legislators at a local, state, county, federal legislators that are committed to this work genuinely, then policy will change and it'll impact our livability, our quality of life, our access to everything. And so the side of the work or the piece of the work that I do is really in attempting to put some action, tangible action, putting together coherent remedies that are prescribed by Black folks through stakeholder meetings and so on, so that we can actually get to some repair because there is so much work. And you're right, Lisa, I completely agree. My definition includes that reparations is a, is a process, a very complex process, but one that we have to start. And so in my city, we are pre- predominantly white, predominantly affluent, we're known for our diversity and celebrated and so on. And we do a lot of the satisfaction stuff well in our city, but I began to just be insulted and um, really unhappy and angry that I was feeling like our community was being made a mockery of. So we sit here and we look at our data and we see that we have a $46,000 household income divide between black and white neighbors we see our achievement gap. We see that 71% of the arrests in our community for marijuana were in the black community and we're only 16% of the population. And then we wanna still congratulate ourselves on our diversity and inclusion while we're living in these conditions. And I just realized that it's just a policy decision. And so we have to really connect this work, stakeholder groups to, uh, to the legislative process so that we can get to the action that we want. Because I just get so frustrated just how brilliant you all have to be, Lisa and Richard, and how many new ways do we have to tell our story and, and, and show our history? How many Nicole Hannah-Jones are gonna come next and so on before we just change the policy? And it's for me, it's very frustrating. And I, I, I know that we all have our, our place in the movement and in the struggle, but, Policymakers need to put some action behind um, the stories that they're healing. The truth telling shouldn't be in vain. It, it's starting to feel almost like this um, sick form of entertainment in us telling our story over and over again. Now do something because they can do something. Yes, um, thank you for everything that you all just said. I'm, my wheels are turning, my my thoughts are kind of just bursting in a million different directions um, and so many points of things that I want to, to say, um, but we don't have time for all of that. I do, I do wanna say just a few things. Richard, I appreciate you making some concrete connections between abolition and reparations. Um, and and as I was like listening to, to what you were saying, like I think one of the beautiful things about abolition, and first off, like not everyone's gonna be an abolitionist, but I think there's a lot of things that everyone can learn from an abolition kind of praxis. Um, and I think what I hear like oftentimes, like what I love about abolition is that like, I feel like it's people, 
that are at the core. It's like identifying the problems, identifying the systemic issues, naming what's happening, understanding what the history is, but then it is legitimately about centering the people who have been most historically marginalized and then creating a new world to, to center that, right? And to, and, to, and to provide people with these skills and the resources and the things that they need to flourish, not for the sake of profit, but for the sake of their flourishing, for the sake of the, the flourishing of community. Um, what you talked about, Richard, about like that component around, um, like there's this careful balance that yes, it is it is about this dismantling of the systems that, that we're up against and, and the creating of something new, but we can't forget about the people that are entangled in the systems now. And how do we care for folks who are entangled in the systems now while also working towards achieving this, this new world? And so I think, and, and so I think that that's when I hear you, Lisa, talk about like the relationality dynamic has to change in how we see each other. And so that that component is important. So it's this holistic kind of approach where it's like, yes, it's the policy piece, it's the human piece, and it's the caring for and the centering of folks who have been most wounded. And, and how do we repair from there? Um, and, and Robin, like to your point, it's, this shit is hard. Like, let's just real talk. Like it's hard. It's exhausting. It's frustrating. Um, and yet we keep going and we keep, and we keep pressing forward, you know? And I think that these types of conversations, to be honest, is what I, I believe gives so much hope. And I think that this notion of like this resurrection bursting into the ugliness of the frustration, the violence is, is when we are coming together, having these conversations to imagine something new, something different. Um, and so, so with that, each of you all are doing that already on the ground. And so would love to, I know that Robin, you've shared quite a bit of, about the work that you've done in Evanston and would just love for you to share a little bit about how the faith community has been involved in that. Mm -hmm. Richard, I know that you are a part of a coalition around reparations here in Illinois. Um, Lisa, just the work that you're doing. So like, just share some concrete proposals that you all are working at, things that you've seen. I think perhaps even in this conversation too, like we could talk about um, why is it that when black and brown people talk about reparations, it's unthinkable as if there haven't been ways that this has been done before, right? Um, and so maybe talk about ways in which you've seen other countries do it, but maybe for European folks. So, so yeah, so I don't, I don't know who wants to die. I'll jump, I'll jump in okay. and because I'm really proud of what our faith community is doing. Um, the interfaith community of Evanston has um, really taken ownership and they, it has come to now uh, tangible benefits, but it started with uh, understanding of what reparations is. Uh, our history being very truthful and honest uh, with our history in Evanston, our allies, non-Black folks understanding their role in sustaining these conditions and acknowledgement. It's been small group works. It's been connecting uh, reparations to the scripture. It's been white papers. and conferences. They've invited uh, many leaders, including Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee and, and our own Congresswoman Jan Joukowsky. And so what's happened now is uh, just last Sunday, actually, or the last Sunday of Black History Month, I spoke at uh, First United Methodist Church, a historically white church that uh, has given a significant gift to reparations in Evanston. Um, and they now have partnered with the interfaith community our Jewish, our synagogues now are developing reparation funds that will be going to Black-led organizations to determine what will happen with these funds. And, and I couldn't be more proud. It's happening um, through the leadership of 
Interfaith Evanston. Uh, Beth Emmett Synagogue has played an important role. Uh, First United Methodist, which is uh, Pastor Grace is the pastor there. She's played an important role. And then reparations and, and um, Dr. Iva Carruthers, if anyone is familiar with Dr. Iva Carruthers, um, is a fifth ward native. So she's from the segregated you know, community in Evanston and her work is uh, centered around uh, social justice and this relationship to, to our faith. And so we have a history of that here and it's taken a while for us to connect the two, but it's happening now, building momentum. Our faith leaders are now inspiring other leaders in other cities and speaking across the nation on how they might establish funds and educate their congregations on our history and what reparations is. Amazing, amazing. Um, yeah, I actually met you um, when we were launching our Guaranteed Income Pilot Project for Chicago. Uh, uh, and yeah, so it's good to see that this, what, what's happening in Everson is continuing to grow. Um, and so just a little bit about what we moved or are moving. So we are part of a coalition called the Pure Cannabis Coalition who um, uh, helped inform and advocate for HB 1438, which was the Recreational Cannabis Tax Act in Illinois. Um, our demands were grounded in the UN's definition of reparations. We saw a number of the aspects, closeness um, to what it was that we wanted to see. But I think policy development, policy passage, and policy implementation are three different things. And in the implementation phase is often the watering down of the principles and purpose of whatever policy it is that you're trying to enact, right? So we did see things like expungements. We saw our $3 where 25% of the cannabis tax revenue was dedicated to go to these disproportionately impacted areas. Um, we saw a lot of good things happen, but 2020 happened and the pandemic kind of threw most of the advocacy organizations that were in pure into, you know, frontlines work around mutual aid, also racial justice, criminal justice reform, et cetera, et cetera. And so we began to build out. Um, so in 2021, well, in the middle of 2020 is where we started having conversations around guaranteed income because we were doing so much direct cash payments to folks who were on the ground. Like a lot of our folks didn't have a place to, you know, to quarantine. Um, they're, you know, a lot of them were survivors of uh, domestic violence. Um, so what does it mean to tell them to go home? Right. And so we're, we're trying to house people. We're trying to ensure that they have re resources. And so we ended up in 2021, we launched the Chicago Future Fund. I'm trying to be brief, which is a guaranteed income pilot project for formerly incarcerated people. Um, and so the, in West Garfield Park. We chose West Garfield Park because high rates of um, unemployment, um, the, I think it's like nearly 80% of young black men ages 17 to 34 are unemployed. Um, uh, there is, um, it's also like one of the billion dollar blocks, you know, it's in that area, right? Um, and so we wanted to focus on West Garfield Park. We focused on West Garfield Park. We have 30 participants receiving $500 a month for the next 18 months. And we're using that to inform our reparations demands. We saw out of Stockton, out of you know, all of these guaranteed income conversations, the results of these projects were ultimately the results we want to see in our communities via programs like reparations, right? And so we're like, how does direct cash payments relate to reparations? And we weren't going to see that unless we created a program 
that we felt targeted survivors of the war on drugs. And for us, those are folks who are, um, you know, formerly incarcerated folks that are making, um, you know, that are unemployed, currently unemployed. Um, and um, and so we, we launched that, that study. And in relationship to that, we launched this Illinois Reparations Coalition. Shout out to all, there's like 16 organizations that are part of the coalition now. It has grown dramatically. Um, and our core purpose is to win drug war rape, drug war reparations in the state of Illinois. Um, and so we want to divert um, the cannabis tax dollars to a permanent compensation fund for survivors of the war on drugs. We are demanding for all five pillars. But as you know, as you move policy, you got to move it one piece at a time. The first piece of policy that we plan to move in 2023 is the compensation component. Right now, there's tons and there's billions of dollars that is being accumulated via cannabis in Illinois, and there still isn't one Black-owned dispensary operating, right? Um, and so, again, you know, 71% of the folks who were arrested in 2020 were, were, were Black folks. This is under legalization, right? And so we're like, all right, we, and we had state representatives get on stage and say, this is about reparations. So we're like, if it's about, about reparations, bet them up, let's make it about reparations. And so that's really what our campaign is about. Um, and we are building, we have recently launched a survey that I'll share with you. Um, that's, that's serving, we're trying to survey 5,000 Illinois residents, their survivors um, around the demands because we wanna make sure that the, the, the demands are actually form, informed by the community. So we have a survey which really kind of go through the five pillars and the demands that we've circulated thus far. Um, and that's the stage that we're at in the campaign. After we get those demands, we're gonna build out a big public education component and then start implementing policy. That all sounds amazing, Richard, seriously. And also the work that you're doing in Evanston, Robin, is just completely and utterly inspiring. I think the thing that, that um, I've been working on has been more on a national level and, and also um, some work in Georgia with the Carter Center, them partnering with, um, with folks with um, several different agencies in, in, the, in the Georgia area to do truth telling unto repair. And I think it's important for us to, to make sure that is a part of our process that truth telling has to go hand in hand with reparation to just to do reparation without actually the process of of bringing about the truth, having a truth commission or other kinds of public truth telling um, happen, it 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 short circuits the 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 process of reforming the power relationship, the dynamic between the oppressed peoples and the governments that oppress them. That truth telling is a part of of the breathing life, breathing dignity, or reaffirming dignity in people whose, whose dignity has not been affirmed. So um, in Georgia, that work is happening. Um, it's actually happening particularly focused on the 1906 massacre. And then of course, from the Truth Commission that is, uh, is, is in the works, um, there would be conversation about how do we repair now what was broken through that, through that event. And then also uh, there are actually Truth Commissions propping up in in cities all over the country. Um, I wanna just, I wanna lift up um, the two pieces of legislation that are moving through Congress right now because on a national level, they would be able to help locally as well. So HR 40 is one that is actually on the brink. They have every vote they need in order to pass it out of the house as of about a week ago. But now the question is, even if they did that, would it make it through the Senate? And that is questionable, we're not sure. So if you could just put your two hands together and pray 
<laughs> and then also put your hand to your phone and call, call your senator and tell them you want, you want HR 40 to be passed. That is net, that's necessary. And then also call the president, call President Biden and tell him he needs to do whatever it takes in order to make HR 40 happen. HR 40 would actually create the opportunity for a commission to be put together that would study what is necessary in order for um, things to be made well. One of the points that I make um, in, in this reparations chapter of Fortune is that in order to do reparations, the process is prime, is key, and that process has to center um, the, the points of view and the expertise that comes from the impacted community. So that's why HR 40 is so important because it would give us exactly that on a federal level. There's another piece of legislation that's, um, that is um, moving its way through Congress. Right now it's called HCON Res 19, and that's the Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Commission Act. And that would give us not only one national truth commission, but that truth commission would now would uh, be centered in local communities all over the country. So there would be local truth commissions that would be federally run or federally um, uh, designed, but then locally run. And what they find would then go into an archive of data that then could not be refuted. So we don't have to retread this ground, this, the reshaping of our, of our narrative, our national narrative every generation. Um, and it would include components that would lead toward reparation. So these two pieces of legislation are actually complementary and are walking hand in hand through Congress right now. And they are national, but they also have local implications. So I just wanna lift that up for us to push them, push, um, push our, our, our legislators um, to say yes to them both. Thank you. Thank you everyone for your time today, for being here, for sharing. The work that you all do is incredible. The way that you expand our understanding and our knowing is it, I think the only word I can have for it is really holy. So thank you so much for entering us into this holiness that I I literally cannot contain myself right now. <laughs> That's how great this conversation is. Um, so before we end this podcast episode, Gia and I ask all of our guests three rapid fire questions. So questions that come off the top of your mind. Um, and I'll go first. So the first question is what words or images come to mind when you think of resurrection? Sunrise. I think of people standing with their arms raised to the sky as in vulnerable and strong at the same time and connected. Yeah, I see, I see for some reason I see roots. Mm. Yeah. What is one way you practice abolition in your everyday life? Honestly, I practice abolition in my everyday life by being free from fear of my neighbor. 
And so, you know, in our, in our fear um, is one of the things that drives um, the violence in our communities. And I moved about a year and a half ago back into the community where my mom grew up and my great grandma and my grandma were here. They were here for 70 years and it went through an like literal war. Um, the drug wars just decimated this community. And so now it's in the middle of major, major gentrification. And when I realized that there were a lot of people walking around with lattes and dogs in my grandmom's old neighborhood, I kind of got incensed. So I moved back in. I said, we got to reclaim this land. And, um, but, but there's still an old guard here. And so I've made it a point to know the names and stories of all of my neighbors. And, um, you know, that, that is abolition. That is going directly against the, the tide. It teaches us to fear each other and therefore not to, not to be for each other. Policy. I think about, um, yeah, I just try to show up as my whole self in, in meetings, right? I think there's a lot that comes with like, you know, I think as a formerly incarcerated founder of an organization, there's a lot of uh, code switching that occurs, a lot of, you know, and try, I try to show up as myself, right? Like I'll show up to a meeting with the mayor's team in sweatshirts, sweatpants and a t-shirt because you got to humanize this, right? In every aspect of, you know, uh, of our relationship. So I think that's just it, just trying to keep it a buck. <laughs> at all times and, and just speak my truth. Thank you. Thank you all. Yes. And our final rapid fire question is what brings you joy and laughter? My four-year-old grandson and aromatherapy. <laughs> I love that, Robin. What brings me joy and laughter? My dog, um, Babe, who is laying over there on the couch and just seeing her growing and learning. And then also my nieces and nephews, um, they ground, you know, they ground and they do bring joy. Yeah, I'll say um, my littles who are always just like consistently learning and and yeah, and getting on my nerves sometimes too. So I think they bring me joy. <laughs> and then um, yeah, and then I'm I'm a big I'm big in the in the biking. So I like getting on on my bike and, and riding for you know hours at a time to just kind of get away from politics, theory. Just get on my bike and go right. And so I like to cycle, and that's my joy. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much for just showing up and being your full authentic selves with all of your brilliance and giftedness and joys and laughter. So we're, this is a gift for us. And so just thank you. I know our listeners will be really blessed and also challenged by this conversation. So thank you. How can um, our listeners oh, find yes. you, follow you, subscribe, keep in touch with you and the amazing work that you are each doing? I can be reached directly at robin at firstrepair.org. And I am on all social uh, platforms, Robin Ruth Simmons, Robin Fifth Ward on Instagram. Fabulous. LisaSharonHarper.com. Um, you can look up fortune at fortunebook.us. Um, and then I'm also on all the socials as Lisa S. Harper 
on Twitter and Instagram and Lisa Sharon Harper um, on, on uh, Facebook. We'll be on TikTok by the end of the year. I'm just scared. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that. I was thinking about it too. I get addicted I'm to scared. that. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely addictive. Oh, so Rich Wallace, uh, Richard Wallace, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Rich Wallace EAT, or you can follow our Instagram page, Eat Orch Chicago, on Twitter and on Instagram. And yeah, that's it. And all my other stuff is blocked, so I need space. <laughs> Good for you, boundaries. I'm on LinkedIn too. <laughs> yeah, the boundary. 